If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Nicholas Thompson. He is the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine. He's also a contributing editor at CBS, which means you've probably seen him on the air talking about tech stories and trends. He also co-founded The Atavist, a digital magazine and publishing platform. Prior to being at Wired, he was a senior editor at The New Yorker and editor of NewYorker.com. He also published a book called The Hawk and the Dove, which was about the history of the Cold War. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thanks, Byron. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So, artificial intelligence, what's that all about? <laughs> well, it's one of the most important things happening in technology right now. So, do you think it really is intelligent, or is it just faking it? What is it, like, from your viewpoint? Uh, is it... Is it actually smart or not? Oh, I think it's definitely smart. I think that the premise of artificial intelligence, which if you define it as you know machines making independent decisions, is very smart right now and soon to get even smarter. Well, it always sounds like I'm just playing, what do they call it, semantic gymnastics or something. But does the machine actually make a decision? Or is it just no more than your clock makes a decision to advance the, the minute hand, one minute, you know, the computer's as deterministic as that clock. It doesn't really decide anything. It just is a giant clockwork, isn't it? Right. I mean, that gets you into a really complicated discussion about, well, it gets you into 19 layers of a complicated discussion. I would say, yes, in a way, it is like the clock, but in other ways, the machines are making decisions that are totally independent from the instructions or the data that was initially fed it are finding patterns that the humans weren't seeing and couldn't be coded in. So in that way, it becomes quite different from a clock. Well, how so? I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I mean, the compass that points to the north, you know, it doesn't know which way north is. I mean, that would be uh, giving it too much credit. I mean, it, but mm-hmm. it, it, it does something that we can't do tell magnetic north and so how how is that really is the compass intelligent by the way you see the world is the compass intelligent by the way i see the world well the compass is i mean one of the issues here is that artificial intelligence uses two words that have very complicated meanings and their definition evolves as we learn more about artificial intelligence. And not only that, but the definition of artificial intelligence and the way it's used changes constantly, both as our technology evolves, as it learns to do new things, and as it develops its brand value. So back to your initial question, is a compass that points to the north intelligent? It is intelligent in the sense that it's adding information to our world, but it's not it's not doing anything independent of the person who created it, who built the tools and who imagined what it would do. You build a compass, you know that it's going to point north, you put the pieces inside of it, you know it will do that. It's not 
breaking outside of the box of the initial rules that were given to it. And the premise of artificial intelligence is that it is breaking out of that box. How so? I'd like to really understand that a little more. Like I buy a Nest thermometer, a Nest learning thermometer. uh, And over time, I'm like, oh, I'm too hot. I'm too cold. I'm too cold. I'm too hot. And it, quote, figures it out. But how is it breaking out of what it knows? Well, I mean, what would be interesting about a Nest thermometer, I don't know the details of how a Nest thermometer works, but if a Nest thermometer is looking at all the patterns of when you turn on your heat and when you don't, if you program in a Nest thermometer and you say, please make the house hotter between six in the morning and 10 o'clock at night, that's relatively simple. If you just install a Nest thermometer and then it watches you and follows your patterns and then reaches the same conclusion, it's ended up at the same output, but it's done it in a different way, which is more intelligent, right? Well, that's really the question, isn't it? I, I, the reason I dwell on these things is not to kind of count angels dancing on heads of pins, but to me, this kind of speaks to the ultimate limit of what this technology can do. Like if it is just a giant clockwork, then you kind of have to come to the question, is that what we are? Are we just a giant clockwork? Uh, if we're not, and it is, then there are limits to what it can do. If, if we are and it is, or we're not and it's not, then maybe someday it can do everything we can do. Do you think that someday it can do everything we can do? Oh, so there, so this is, yes, I thought this might be where you were going, right? And it gets so interesting. And that was where, in my initial answer, I was started head in this direction. But my instinct is that we are like a giant clock and an extremely complex clock and a clock that's built on rules that we don't understand and won't understand for a long time. And that is built on rules that defy the way we normally program rules into clocks and calculators, but that essentially we are, you know, reducible to some form of math and with infinite wisdom, we could reach that, that there isn't a special spiritual unknowable element in the box. And well, my instinct let, me, is that, let, me, let me pause right there. Let's put a pin in that word spiritual for a minute, but I want, mm-hmm. I want to draw attention to when I ask you if, the AI is just a clockwork. You said, no, it's more than that. And if I ask you if a human's a clockwork, you say, yeah, I think so. Ah, Well, that's because I was taking your definition of clock, right? Okay. So I I think what you said a minute ago is really where it's at, which is, you know, either we are clocks and, um, or we are, we are either, we are clocks and the machines are clocks, right? Or we are machines. We are clocks and machines are not clocks or right. The, four possibilities there. And my instinct is that if we're going to define it that way, and we're going to define clocks in an incredibly broad sense, meaning mathematical reasoning, including mathematics that we don't understand today, I'll make the argument that both humans and the machines you're creating are clocks. If we're thinking of clocks in a much more narrower sense, which is you know just a set of simple instructions, input, output, then machines can go beyond that and humans can go beyond that too. But no matter how we define the clocks, I'm putting the humans and the machines in the same category. So I either agree, depending on what your base definitions are, that humans and machines both are category A or they both not category A, that there isn't a fundamental difference between the humans and the machines. So you made that that distinction that the whether either that or you have to appeal to some kind of spiritual explanation for why humans are different. But is that really the only two choices we're left with. For instance, 
could, you know, the, the, the clock analogy uh, is based on kind of a reductionist view of physics. It says, you know, just you can break everything down into progressively smaller pieces. You know, we can, we can understand what that clock does and it's just really physics and the spring is just physics. And, you know, we can get it down to its basic component and we can understand it kind of from top to bottom. But, but is it possible that humans are, you know, a quantum phenomenon or that we are some kind of strong emergence that we don't yet understand? And we really are different than machines. Can you, can you remain true to like scientific value but still say A and B are, are different? People and computers are different. Um, I think you you can certainly make that argument. There are all kinds of brilliant people who have made that argument over time. My instinct, and I don't, you know, this isn't something I've written about, argued long about, or have an opinion that I couldn't that couldn't be changed by a smart person with new information in a long conversation. My instinct is that what makes up human reasoning can be recreated in machines, possibly not right now, possibly because they're principles and how the human mind works that we don't understand, but that as we continue on this journey of understanding artificial intelligence, understanding where machines can go, we will get closer to being able to match the way our minds work and the way machines work. Not match exactly it, but that's one of the things that interests me about artificial intelligence and in that as we try to understand it and as we try to think about the, what the machines do, we also gain an element of self-knowledge and it also creates an opportunity and exercise to think through how our minds work and what it means to be a person. Okay, well, I'm only going to ask one more question, two, two more questions along this line, then we can move on to kind of more practical nuts and bolts. But I wrote, I wrote a book where I, I asked my reader, you know, you're one of three things. Pick, pick one. You're either a machine, what we were just talking about, or you're an animal, which is kind of a machine that has a life, or you're a human, which is an animal with something extra, the player to be named kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I found that of my 80 or 90 guests on this show, all of them but three or four, like I can count them, like it's so notable I can count them, all but three or four say they're a machine. And more than that, they are almost like, of course, I mean like, duh, right? It's a, an implied duh. Yeah. But the interesting thing is when I run a quiz on my website, I find 85% of people say that they're a human, they're not a machine. And furthermore, when I was writing this book and I talked about you know people who think they're machines, my editor wrote in the column, does anybody really think that? Come on. So why is there such a divide between people who are in AI and the whole rest of the country about this really basic question? Is it that it's a self-selection that you have to think that to kind of get into AI? or or what because it's it's not a little thing it's 85 percent of people say they're yeah. human, and it's virtually nobody on this show says they're human why what well, there, i would say i would say two hypotheses so one is 
self-selection or even natural selection, right? That if you don't believe that, and if you believe that there's something fundamentally different about people than about machines, maybe you stop your work before you you reach a certain point. Um, you know, most of the AI experts you've had on the show are, you know, at the top of their field. Maybe you don't reach the top of your field if you don't have that belief. So it's, it is self-selection. And then another hypothesis would be the people you have on the show are, have a much deeper understanding of what machines do um, and therefore have, are willing to, it's not that they are sort of ascribing lesser values to humans. They are just ascribing higher values to machines. But let me turn around the question and ask you, which is, you've now had this conversation with the 85 to 90 people. You've gone through the exercise of writing the book. How has your view on this question changed? I'm perplexed, frankly, by the overwhelming number of people who come on the show who think that. Because to my rationalistic, scientific way of looking at this, my logic goes like this. We have brains we don't understand. Like, we don't know what a thought is, right? Like, we really don't. And we have minds. And a mind I'm going to define is like all this stuff the brain does that seems kind of like overreaching for an organ, like creativity and a sense of humor. Your liver isn't creative and doesn't have a sense of humor. Your stomach isn't. And so we, we have these minds we don't even understand. And then, and then we have something called consciousness. We experience the world. A computer can measure temperature. I get that. We feel warmth. And the idea that matter can have a first-person experience of the universe. So I think we have these brains we don't understand, these minds we don't understand. And we have consciousness, which may be integral to intelligence. Ergo, we can build all that. And see, that's the part that just floors me is that everybody admits steps one, two, and three of that logical chain. We don't understand the brain, we don't understand the mind, we don't understand consciousness, but we can build it. I know we can build it. And I think that's an article of faith in the end uh, that, that I find perplexing. I really do. And that's why I'm kind of looking for that person who says, yeah, there's a lot about us we don't understand. And maybe we can't build it. Maybe it's impossible. Maybe it's like going back in time. It just can't be done. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that person and make that argument, but I wonder whether there's an interesting side argument to that, which is I think probably with infinite, not infinite knowledge and lots of evolution and lots of work, you could probably have a machine replicate a human mind or experience what a human mind experiences, whatever that is. But that also will never do that because there isn't, a use case for that. And so what we'll actually be doing is AI improves and as technology improves and as technology moves forward and as the relationship between humans and machines evolves is we'll never be building a replica. We'll just be advancing machines that can do some of the things that a human mind can do, but can just do them better. So we'll be taking out the, you know, of the billion parts of what a human mind does, we'll be taking little parts of it and advancing them beyond human capability in specific machines uh, and eventually, over time, I don't know whether we'll ever really recreate a human mind. Well, I agree with you that 99% of all the money spent in AI is spent on what you're just talking about. Hey, let's let's spot spam better. You know, let's route yeah. through traffic better. But I can list people that are working on general AI. DeepMind presumably is. OpenAI presumably is. The 
the Human Brain Project in Europe, which has billions in funding, that is Carnegie Mellon, maybe. I mean, like, I think there are people who, like, that would be the ultimate achievement to build a general intelligence. Like, you know, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it'll tell us, it'll tell us the, the answer to every question we could ever ask, it, you know, 42. Um, right, but ahead. that's, so... <laughs> Right. And so my wonder is whether that general intelligence actually will, when DeepMind says, hey, we've done it, we can answer every question a human can answer, whether it actually experiences emotion the way a human can, whether it can feel temperature the way a human can, whether it can write music the way a human can, or whether there will be other parts of the human experience in the human mind that will always elude DeepMind or whatever that next AGI is. Well, the interesting thing to me is that, you know, our DNA, I'm going to get the numbers a little off here, but the right order of magnitude is something like 600 meg. But the mm -hmm. amount, you know, we share half of it with the banana and we share 99% with the chimp. And, you know, we're smart in a way maybe a chimp isn't. And so if you take 1%, right. we're 6 meg that gives us general intelligence. 6 meg of original source code somehow yeah. gives us that. So it's not good source code. Whoever wrote that was good at good at writing code. You know, and in theory, it's got a bunch of junk DNA in it, right? It's got a bunch of that. Right, so it's really like three mags, two mags, one mag? Well, it's funny you say that. Stephen Wolfram thinks the whole universe has built a calculation and, and the whole program that built everything was maybe 30 lines long. That would be all you would need. <laughs> iterated, iterated enough times and it'll give you the kind of complexity we have. Well, thank you for, for that, 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 that whole chat. So now... Let's that was talk fun. about that was how I thought we, we would begin, to, but that's wonderful. Well, let's talk about what we know how to do. So, sure. Narrow AI. Give me, give me kind of a. Wired just came out with an issue dedicated to AI, and I. Yeah. Um, and so, kind of give me a synopsis of where what's the state of the art right now. Well, I mean, the state of the art is that AI is being built into, you know, it's. It's becoming more and more just the way computers work. So a lot of what's happening in computing is happening through AI. So my, my particular interest in AI, we have two things. One, we have a wired specialist here on AI, which has a series of terrific essays on how AI can work, AI and common sense, AI and bias, um, whether AI is going to be something that everybody uses or whether it will centralize power with large companies. These are all really important questions. So those are in our special AI issue. And then I wrote a story about AI and foreign policy. And the question there is, it looks like over time, technology is certainly correlated. I don't know whether it's causal, but the rise of technology is correlated with a decline in democracy, which is the opposite of what certainly I would have predicted 20 years ago, and what most people would have predicted over most of the last 20 years, where it seemed like post-Cold War technology would lead to an increase of democracy and decline of authoritarianism. And so the question that interests me the most right now is whether AI accentuates that trend and whether in particular China's focus on AI makes it more likely that the future we have is one that on balance favors authoritarianism over democracy. So that is the, that is the question that interests me the most right now. So when you mention China in passing, are you thinking about the use of AI and things like social credit? 
Yeah. So I'm thinking about it in a couple of ways. One is if you look at the advances in AI in China, um, there does seem to be, uh, you know, an emphasis on technology that can be used for control and surveillance. Um, so, you know, for example, the social credit system, using AI for social credit. You know, we've recently seen patents and technology on, you know, lip reading and crowds, identifying people from gate. Um, obviously, the image recognition technology that China uses is very effective. And of course, there are also all kinds of uses of AI that are just built for you know, building the economy and improving the lives of Chinese citizens. But I do think that the use of AI in China for purposes of surveillance and you know, limiting unrest is a profoundly important thing to watch. So talk a little bit about social credit for the listener who may not be that familiar with it or only familiar with the term. Yeah, so the idea of the social credit system is that, you know, not everybody in China, but this is being rolled out and it seems like it will continue to be rolled out, is think about your FICO score, right, which is in the United States a measure of your credit worthiness. And it's very useful for determining whether you get a loan. And then imagine, take all the factors that go into your FICO score, right? How many credit card accounts have you opened? Do you pay them back? Have you defaulted? Do you have black marks? And then imagining, then imagine adding every other factor you could to them, right? So imagine adding like, do you pay your parking tickets on time? Do you, have you gotten speeding tickets? Have you given money to charity? And you can imagine a state setting up a value system and then grading its citizens in every one of those categories. So I sometimes joke that it's, you know, a FICO score adjusted for your political beliefs. And it seems like, oh, and then not only that, and then this is the part that's most interesting to some, most nefarious to others, is that your score gets adjusted by the people you are connected to. So imagine that if you had a FICO score adjusted for your politics and then adjusted for the scores of all the people you are friends with on Facebook or that you follow on Twitter, right? So that you then have lots of incentives to, you have all kinds of incentives to behave better. So in China, a score like this, to some degree, not obviously everything, but lots of data that the government can get, is being set up for every citizen will have an effect on how the person moves through society. And there are all kinds of, you know, good things that can come about from this. You can have a more efficient economy. You can have a benevolent government could set incentives, right, for people to treat each other properly. There all kinds of potential benefits, but the disadvantage, of course, is that you, you know, increase the capacity for state surveillance and control. And give some examples, if you, if you would, of some of the uses. What would a bad score mean to me in a practical life? Well, a bad score could mean that, you know, you, um, you can't rent a bicycle, right? For example, like if you have a bad score, we can make it hard for you to rent a bicycle, or we can make it harder for you to go through a checkout line, or we can make it, you know, your, I don't know, the taxes you can pay can increase, right? And you can imagine all kinds of levers that a government can have over its citizens in the way it could use, it could use the bad score. Um, you know, maybe you're, um, you know, you and I both commit the same crime, and you have a better score than I do, maybe I am sentenced for longer, or maybe my bail is set higher. And so is your concern 
broadly that that is going to happen in parts of the world? Or are you concerned that that some semblance of that could happen in, in the U.S. Where, where, where we're broadcasting from? My concern is that that system, you know, as it's developed, and we're still in early days in, in China, my concern, absolutely, I mean, this is not my only concern, but my one concern I have is that, yes, that China will export this system, right? We've recently seen that Venezuela has purchased Chinese technology and gotten Chinese engineers to help construct a national identity card, which will have elements of this system built into it. And so you can imagine that China effectively exporting the system to help authoritarian governments maintain control of their citizens. We've also seen China you know, which has developed very strong surveillance technology, selling that to you know, Zimbabwe as an example, a country that where the government would like to be able to better surveil its citizens. Um, and so they've purchased Chinese technology to do it. And so, yeah, one concern that I have is that this technology will, you know, will be shaped in China um, in ways that differ from the values I have. Uh, and that will then be exported. I mean, there's a really interesting question embedded in this, um, which is how confident am I or how confident is any critic that, you know, China exporting the system will make the world worse, however you want to broadly define that question, given how much prosperity, wealth and happiness China has created in its own country over the last several decades. I mean, it's... Um, you know, that gets, you, you can get pretty, pretty deep into that subset of this particular debate. So what, what is your takeaway from all of that? Are you, do you kind of just say, let's keep an eye on this or let's make sure we pass legislation here, or let's make sure that the behavior that it's shaping is consistent with your values. Like what are you, what are you, are you urging people to do anything? Yeah. So, okay. So if I, all right, so I would urge a couple things. So one, I would very strongly urge people to think about this issue, debate this issue, study this issue, whole conferences about this issue, discuss this issue. I think that there's not enough thought in the world right now being given to, is technology leading to authoritarianism? What kind of technology can, you know, better counter this trend? To what degree do we care about this trend? Um, I think in general, the magnitude of the import of this question to whether we have a functioning, prosperous, free society in 25, 30 years, 50 years is underestimated. So I very strongly, completely confidently argue that we should discuss this more, but that's easy. So the next question is, okay, so what do I recommend for the technology companies, right? And to the technology companies, I, you know, particularly the American technology companies, I would argue you need to be thinking, you know, very carefully about how your, whether your technology has led to declines in democracy and whether you can counter that, right? To, for example, to the social media platforms or the ways that you have constructed your algorithms that are breaking democratic societies down, that are pushing us into filter bubbles, that are making our system function less. Are there ways that your country functions that have led to increased income inequality, which has also, I think, led to part of the breakdown in democracy? And so to them, I would say, you know, I, you know to each of the specific ones, I could probably give some recommendations. Um, and then the third level would be, okay, so what about for the U.S. government or what about for other 
liberal democratic governments. And there I would say, well, A, I think that you should, you know, be pushing AI as a national priority, as China is doing. Um, I would recommend, you know, opening data sets to help researchers. I would recommend, you know, figuring out ways to help society cope with artificial intelligence. I would think about how it will be integrated into the military. I think that there are a whole series of things that liberal democracy should be doing with technology to help make sure that as we go through this sort of Cambrian explosion of technologies that they're being built and designed in ways that are, you know, good for liberal democratic values, good for our economy, good for maintaining, you know, maintaining social cohesion in these countries. And then as a last policy element, and this is one where I think I think this one is specific and important and something to deal with right now. We are entering a moment where the US and China are being, you know, driven further and further apart. Right. There's maybe a temporary relaxation the week we're recording this, but in general it seems like the US tech sector and the Chinese tech sector are diverging. And my fear is that it's possible that the diversion makes the problem I'm describing worse. You can make a counter argument and say that it's only by holding a tough line on China that you'll be able to change the arc of Chinese technology. But my general view is that the best thing to happen right now would be more integration of the U.S. technology sector and the Chinese technology sector. So the countries, you know, building their tech stacks closer and closer together, sharing research, allowing people to go back and forth for the big U.S. technology companies to do more work within China within you know, the limits that they set up based on their own values. So the fourth level would be, I do think that there should be more integration between the U.S. and Chinese technology spheres. Do you fundamentally believe that liberal democracies are more successful over time? Financially, the happiness of the people, the desire of people to live there, the like, are, are, are they going, would they inherently be more successful as countries? Yeah, then that's a, so I'll say, I'll say two things to that. So number one is the evidence certainly points to that. If you look over the last couple hundred years, right, authoritarianism doesn't work. And the more democratic you are, the, you know, sort of it tends to lead to economic prosperity. It tends to lead to however you measure human happiness, whether you longevity, all the things that you can throw into the bucket of human happiness, it does seem that liberal democracy does push in that direction. So yes, I do think as a general principle, that's true. But if you look at the last little period of time, it's not necessarily as true. And it seems like it's possible that in Asia, particularly in China, but in other countries in Asia as well, right? You could look at Singapore, for example, that authoritarianism in some form also leads to, you know, faster moving economies and in fact you know perhaps by you know some measures you know support of the of people in those countries so you know sometimes when i have conversations about this topic people say well you don't need to really worry about that like the us like the us system will win out right it will win out because this is where all the smart people want to go and not only that like it may be that china's economy is growing much faster right now but that's that's a blip and that because of the sort of the profound inefficiencies of a centralized economy, right, where the state picks the winners as opposed to the market picking the winners, you know, over time, the U.S. model will win out and the, you know, the best technology will be developed here. So, you know, you don't you really need to worry. Um, so that's, you know, 
embedded in your question is one of the most interesting counter arguments to my particular concern. But back to your question, I do think in general, but I also think that this is a moment to be to be worried about it. Well, you're undoubtedly right that um, you're undoubtedly right that the technologies we're building to try to find cures for cancer are the same technologies that look for patterns in uh, in people's behavior. So, I mean, it's like the technology will be built and the question is simply what we will use it for, right? Yeah, I mean, that is, that's one of the, one of the things that I think is, I think that in 15 years, smart historians who study the way society is organized and the way society functions will look back at 2016 to 2021 and say, there were some really interesting choices and decisions made about the way AI developed and the way that, you know, the machines were set up that profoundly affected the world that we live in in 2030, right? Um, you know, that have made it so that the most powerful systems in the world are tools of surveillance or the most powerful computers in the world are tools of, you know, creating economic opportunity. We don't know exactly what the choices are and exactly how to guide them, but yes, I absolutely think that the premise of your question is correct, that the technology is advancing, that it can be used for all kinds of things, and that certain things we do right now will determine the degree to which it is used for curing cancer, for surveillance, for creating economic opportunity, and so on. Do you think that in this, in the, in the U.S., that, you know, you think about how easy it would be for the government to already do things like you know, I drive through a toll road and it takes a picture of my license plate like every day, right? And mm -hmm. that thing could be looking to see if I'm a deadbeat dad or have any outstanding warrants or any number of things. And it doesn't. I mean, do you think that in this country we have a, I mean, you never want to say it couldn't happen here, but is it unlikely to happen here, do you think? It's less likely here than elsewhere. And it also depends on what you define as it. Like, I wouldn't be so certain that the camera on the street scanning your license plate isn't put it into a database that then looks and sees whether you're a deadbeat dad or whether it won't be doing that in a little while. I mean, there's a really interesting, there's a really, this is a very interesting moment in surveillance in, um, in the United States because the capacity for surveillance increases exponentially, right? It, you know, every year it increases exponentially. The number of places where we are photographed, the number of places where we are recorded, the capacity of the machines to look at the recordings and look at the images to parse information about it, the amount of data that is collected on us. And so the capacities for surveillance are massively increasing, but at the same time, the U.S. awareness about this is also increasing. And the commitment by some of the companies that play a really important role in the stack to protecting us from this kind of surveillance are increasing. So 
you know, Apple is a very good example. It's a company um, believes deeply in making sure that through the way it develops its products, it limits surveillance. And it does this both because there's a marketing advantage of doing that, right? The main competitor for Apple phones or Android phones, and this is a good way to market a difference between them, and it allows you to sort of slag Android. But it also is, you know, a philosophical belief held by the people at the very top of the company that if you are being surveilled, if you are being watched, you are not able to think your most independent thoughts, you are not able to be your most creative, you are not able to be your true self, and so that they play a very important role in limiting that surveillance. And that's why you see the security on Apple products increasing, the way that the data is being encrypted increasing, the resistance of the company to allow law enforcement, even with valid warrants, to have an effective backdoor into their products. And so you have this moment in surveillance in the United States where there is both much more surveillance and there are also, you know, ways to opt out of it. So to the original question, will we end up at a moment where the AI combined with surveillance technology leads to, you know, more and more government control of citizens? We could head in that direction. We certainly won't go there as quickly as China has or as the way Venezuela appears to be headed. And we won't because of our the core libertarian values because of the beliefs of lots of people in power and because of our technology companies. But there's no question that, um, you know, what you just asked is one of the most important things to watch in tech over the next couple of years. And it's also, it's not an easy thing, right? A perfectly benevolent government acting in full knowledge of its citizens and national interests with no possibilities of abuse you know, in that hypothetical scenario, which could never exist, you would want them to have more powers of surveillance, right? You would want them to be able to track terrorists. You would want them to be able to identify people before they go in and shoot up a movie theater. Um, the question is whether you trust the government enough to allow them to have all that information and all of that capability or where you put limits so that the capacity of law enforcement or the capacity of government to help make society function is maximized while they're, you know, the limiting of the freedom of individuals is minimized. So that's the debate and some of the trade-offs embedded in it. It's interesting. Orwell wrote an essay talking about weapons and totalitarianism. And he said that when the government and the people had the same weapons, you have freedom. And when the government and the people have, when the government has vastly better weapons, you don't anymore. It sounds like you're mm -hmm. applying a variant of that to technology. Yeah, I think that's, I think that, well, there's a separate second variable, which is that I would be, it's, there are governments that, I trust certain governments more than other governments. And so the balance of the technology that the governments have, the control over technology the governments have and the control over technology the citizens have is one factor to weigh. And then the other factor is the interest of the states and how much you can trust the interest of the state to be in the interest of the people. Right. But like our privacy has always rested on the simple fact there's too many of us to watch. Right, you can't listen to every phone conversation, and you can't right. follow every person. And with AI, suddenly you can, mm -hmm. or government can. 
and that that does fundamentally shift the the power. So you mentioned in passing the military use of AI. Do you yeah. are are you is your position? I assume your position uh, is against that. But make a make an if if it is, make an argument. Make the argument, please. Oh no! Quite the contrary. My position is in favor of it. I mean, my position is that if I were if I were the Secretary of Defense of the United States, I would be trying to integrate AI as effectively as possible into my weapon systems, right? So the United States military uses AI in all sorts of ways, right? It's, I, you know, no one has perfect insight into it, but it seems like one of the, you know, it's been used initially for identifying maintenance, right? you know, like using systems to track wear and tear and figure out what parts of what ships or what parts of what airplanes need to be repaired. That's a relatively simple use. Um, you know, you can imagine other uses, which are things they're working on, right? So image recognition for drone targeting. Um, you can imagine war planning. You can imagine AI-powered fighter jets. Um, there are all kinds of uses of AI in the military. And my you know, position as a United States citizen is that, you know, the military should absolutely be working on this as much as possible, right? You get into hairy questions when you go to the, you know, kind of the next level, which is, should machines be able to make, you know, targeting decisions, right? Here's, here's an interesting hypothetical, which is, you know, I don't have, I don't know the framework for it, but, you know, if a machine had better targeting capability, better image recognition than a human, should it be able to make a kill decision? Should a drone that sees Mullah Omar's truck and has, it believes, you know, a certain level of confidence level, should it be allowed to fire the missile or should a human have to weigh in on that? And my instinct, of course, is that no, like a kill decision or a violence decision, like certainly you need a human in there. Um, but then let's take the alternative. Let's say that AI is much, much better at... Um, image recognition and much quicker and can make quicker decisions. What about for missile defense? Should you allow an AI missile defense system to shoot down a warhead coming at this country? And in that case, I would certainly say, well, you know, if you have a more efficient system and we're not there yet, I would say yes. And so that gets into a, a very interesting debate about once we have these AI capabilities, which we don't, but once we have them, how should we allow them to be deployed and where should we limit them? So, here, I, I, I tend to agree, you know, we, in a sense, have had AI weapon systems for 100 years, you know, like landmines, right? Like, the, the programming is very simple. If weight is greater than 50, explode, right? Simple yeah. program. And if somebody said, hey, we're going to make a better one that uh, has a camera, and it can tell if somebody's wearing a uniform, and then and only then it'll blow up. And then somebody says... Yep. And then we have one that can sniff for gunpowder to make sure they're carrying a weapon. And then and only then we explode. Um, yep. You you would say yes all the way up that tree, right? And right now we drop bombs and and they blow up everything. And if somebody said, well, we can have an AI bomb that blows up less things we don't want to blow up. You kind of say yes all the way up that tree. Um, yeah, and this is, this is, oh, we'll keep going. Well, my question is why in Silicon Valley, is there kind of such a reaction to, I mean, you know, all the, you know, all the, the stories of companies that don't want their technology used by the military, like 
they they're they know all that same logic. They know 14 other countries are working on AI-enabled weapons. What what do you think their reasoning is? Like how do how do they how do they counter what I just said about like the landmine? Like what do you think? Right. I mean, thought? the specific example, right, and the example where this debate came out in the fullest was Google and Project Maven. So, you know, Project Maven is image recognition technology. I'm not exactly sure what it's going to be used for. I don't know whether it's been publicly announced or whether I just haven't followed it closely enough. But let's assume that the military wanted to use Google technology for making drones able to more identify targets. Um, you know, many Google engineers said, we don't want that. We don't want our technology being used as, you know, for weapons of war. Um, the counter argument would be, yes, they're being used for weapons of war, but they're being used for weapons of war that are likely to reduce civilian casualties. You know, if you have a drone that is more accurately able to identify the terrorist target in Waziristan, you know, you are able to, you know, fire on him when he's not at a wedding, right? That would be the, the counter argument. So there's less collateral damage. And then of course you have the counter argument, which would be, okay, well, once you, once you make a, weapon that has less collateral damage, you have like reduced the moral barriers to use, so therefore you lead to more use of it. And you can you can continue this back and forth for a while. Your question is, you know, why why did Google, why did so many Google engineers not want to do this? And I would say, hey, well Google management I think probably did. <laughs> a lot of people at the company probably did, both for business interests and because um, a sense that it would make you know, reduce collateral damage and see just a general sense of nationalism in the United States. And you do want the United States as a United States citizen, you can make an argument that you want the United States military to be stronger. And that would be, you know, in general, probably the side I would take depending on, you know, what exactly the facts were. But I think the argument that most of the engineers who, you know, threatened the walkout was just like, we, you know, we understand that there's a military. We understand the United States has one. We don't have a way of opting out of that. We're not going to not pay our taxes and go to jail, but we don't want to have any part in, you know, playing any any role in that. And I can respect that decision, though I think if I were a Google engineer, I would not have, I would not have made that same one. So I'm an optimist. Like, I really think that I can come up with, I, in the end, AI is a technology that, uh, makes people smarter and effectively smarter. It, 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 it allows us to learn from the past because it records data about the past and analyzes it, projects it in the future. And I think it's inherently good to make people smarter. If you don't believe that, then you kind of have to argue for ignorance. No, if people were less smart, we'd all be better off. And, and I don't believe that. And, and what we've been doing in this conversation is exploring, you know, some of the trade-offs. Um, how do you net it all out, though, when you think about AI and you think about there's risk to civil liberty and, <clears throat> and there's a, a lowering the political cost of armed conflict and there's a numbing of the, maybe there's a washing one's hands of the decision to kill other people. And, you know, so we, we've like talked about those. When you net it all out, all the, all the good things this technology is going to do, do you still come away positive about the future or, or you don't think it's, it can't be known what's going to happen or are you more concerned than not? Like how do you net it all out? Well, I, you know, I net it all out as 
positive, right? As a general principle, I am, I feel like, you know, however we measure human happiness, human success, the, our ability to live on the planet, um, you know, I think that AI in general will be, will be a good thing, right? You know, obviously it will cause lots of economic disruption. It will, you know, lead to all kinds of complicated moral issues. It will change geopolitics. But in general, in general, you know, I feel like one should be optimistic about what it will do. I also think that the effect that AI will have on society, you know, can be much better if certain, if, you know, develops in certain ways, right? And so one of the things I think about, and this is probably something where you have a view on, is, is AI ultimately a centralizing technology or a decentralizing technology, right? So will AI be something that makes it easier for me to start a company and develop, you know, an interesting company and hire a lot of people and grow the economy? Or will it, it will it be something that helps nonprofits and civil society and small organizations? Or is it going to be a centralizing technology? Is it going to be something that will just accrue more power to, you know, large corporations, powerful governments, you know, institutions that have massive compute powers that have access to infinite data? And will it in fact become a centralizing technology that has, you know, sort of centralizing network effects, right? So as the AI gets better, it's central, it allows the large central organizations to collect more data, which well, allows me, it to get even better AI. And that, let, that is something I worry about. Okay, let's put it, let, let me ask, turn the question around slightly, which is, do you believe the, which column do you put the internet in? For a long time, um, a decentralizing force, right? And it certainly reduces um, it certainly reduces the you know startup cost to creating new businesses, to communicating, to reaching new customers, and yet, and yet, they're one of the most frustrating things. But the way the internet has developed is the way it has, you know, the way it has entrenched monopolies uh, and the way it has aggregated power in a relatively small number of companies, right? It's one of the interesting things that in companies that mostly deal with atoms, you have a lot of competition problems. There is no second search engine. There is, you know, know, Facebook controls all the growing social networks. But in the companies that deal with bits, you know, there's lots of competition. And you, you know, theoretically, you might actually have thought that you know, because startup costs are so low in the world of atoms, you'd have more competition and more disruption uh, as opposed to the other way around. So net net on the internet, is it, um, is it centralizing? Is it decentralizing? I would say probably net net it's been decentralizing, but there are very unnerving centralizing elements of it. You know, I'm not sure I, I, I agree with that. I mean, which part? Well, I, I mean, obviously, only in degrees, but if I think back to the seventies, you know, there were you. You had your choice of any three channels you wanted. I mean, you had your choice between three channels, and and the news that you watched at five o'clock on one of these three channels, uh, that was kind of that was the world. And you had one or two local newspapers, and you yeah. had no. There was no way for any dissenting view to kind of get out of that. Like there were people who Xeroxed 
manifestos. I mailed them around to people and you would read some, you know, libertarian whatever. But that was a really, and now that doesn't exist anymore, right? Like now. Um, I work in media. I know that so well. <laughs> yeah, there's right. been a huge so, decentralizing force in media right. and information, 100%. And so I kind of think that dwarfs everything else. Um, oh, so you would say the decentralizing elements of media are so substantial that they outweigh the centralizing, you know, sort of network effects of search, social media, Well, you know, people get worried about this whole kind of everybody's in their information bubble. Mm -hmm. um, and you can look at that two ways. You can either say, yeah, yeah. Or you can say, no, we were all in one big bubble before. And it was all the same bubble, but that doesn't make it any, any more or less true. And now people can kind of migrate to a bubble of their choice. Uh, it sounds more plausible and credible to them. And, and I think it's kind of hard to paint that as a bad thing. Um, oh, well, I would, I, yeah, I would, I, I, I'm going to, you, you've disagreed with me in degree and, slightly turn it to nothing where I will slightly disagree in, in degree by saying, if we're talking about the information economy, there's no question that there's been a massive broadening. There's you know much easier to access information. But I would also say that one of the failures of the internet has been, it has not done nearly enough, nearly a good enough job in this decentralization. And that, uh, you know, things can still be going in a direction that is good in one way, but there can also be a massive failure in the other direction, right? We, this, the fact that filter bubbles are such a fact of life in a world where people have access to all of the world's information with a simple search is crazy and is a systems and design failure, I think. You know, I, I kind of have this mantra that I try not to read anything I agree with. Uh, uh -huh. I'm, I'm serious. It's like, I consider that a waste of my time. It's like, if I read it and be like, yep, that's just exactly what I thought. Uh, and, and so I, I have no trouble finding like a world of stuff I disagree with. And so in the end, it, it, it's, it's people's choice more than the, the technology, right? Well, it's a guided choice, right? I mean, yeah you know, technology based on its defaults, based on the way the algorithms work, guides you to one or the other. And without question, the principal algorithmic guides to the internet are doing the opposite of what you are doing with your own free choice. Um, do you think the anonymous internet is inherently a bad idea? Like the well uh, back in the day, you know, the idea was there was always, like you were dealing with the person and you, you would know their name. And and so behavior was like a lot different once once there is no anonymity. Or do you think the anonymity power of the internet is is essential? Both. Um, I think that there has to be a place for anonymity, right? There has to be a place for exploring identities that you're not comfortable with exploring, um, you know, in real life. But I also think that, you know, one way I like to look at this question is if you take all the social platforms and you sort of rank them by how much anonymity is allowed, um, you'll find that the more anonymity is allowed, the worse the conversations, right? So in general, right? So LinkedIn, it's like basically not at all anonymous because not only do you have to use your real name, you tie it to your professional account and to all the people who are tied to you. It's very hard to have a 
LinkedIn account with any network that isn't a real person tied to their genuine account. And the conversations on LinkedIn are pretty civil, pretty informative, pretty great. Right. You know, the next in the queue is Facebook, which has always had a, well, maybe it's not Facebook, maybe it's Instagram, but you go down to the you know bottom of where you know, there's maximum anonymity, which would maybe um, Twitter, Reddit, where it's incredibly easy to just create a new account where there's certain things where you have advantages to not having an anonymous account, but you'll see that the percentage of content that is, you know, hate speech or violent or cruel goes up considerably. So I don't think there's any doubt that allowing lots of anonymity allows a lot of these problems to fester. Of course, they're trade-offs, right? You More anonymity allow, more free speech you allow, and general free speech is one of the great principles of this country, and we should, we should support it. Um, but I think in general, the less anonymity you have, the higher the quality of the conversation. Well, I see we're coming up on our uh, our hour here. It just oh my on. God, we've only and <laughs> can we do another four hours? I really like talking to you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, would you like to to come back for uh, for an encore? You could be my first return guest. <laughs> I'll do an encore. This is fun. We got into some pretty pretty heavy stuff. All right. Well, how can people follow you? And and yeah, how can people follow you? I am, you know, I'm on all kinds of social platforms at NX Thompson. I'm on LinkedIn. And then most importantly, they should read Wired and um, subscribe to Wired, www.wired.com. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you again, Nicholas. Okay, thanks so much. That was really fun. Catch you later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.